Hey y'all, Laurel here. You're about to hear a excellent interview that I had with Dr. Ben House, nutritional scientist, who sat down and basically blew my mind 1,000 times in this interview. So I'm really excited to share this with you. But I also wanted to remind you that we have Sarah and I, a free barbell equipment guide for you via the link in the show notes, which you could head over to right now, sign up and get immediately in your inbox. This guide is to give you barbell curious folks some background on what all the essential equipment for working with barbells is in order of importance. You'll be able to click over to links on Amazon to research more, to kind of see what are the prices, what are the different types of equipment I need, how big is it, what are the different ways that I could set this up potentially in your home if you're interested in having a little home gym area for barbelling. Um, it's probably dawning on you all by now that Sarah and I have something really exciting coming down the pike and we aren't ready to talk about it yet, but obviously it has something to do with barbells. So you can use this guide to just get a feel for what's entailed with barbells. We're going to have more free stuff coming soon as well. And hey, maybe you aren't ready to purchase. That's totally fine. You could start to send subtle or not so subtle hints to your significant other or your friends or your parents like, hey, my birthday's coming up. Just take a look. And you know what? Maybe you have a gym membership and you don't need any of this equipment in your home. Either way, we would like you to cozy up with the barbells. So go ahead, head on over to the show notes, download the PDF, click on over, see what is involved with barbells. All right. And now my excellent interview with Dr. Ben House. Welcome to the Movement Logic podcast with yoga teacher and strength coach Laurel Beversdorf and physical therapist Dr. Sarah Court. With over 30 years combined experience in the yoga, movement, and physical therapy worlds, we believe in strong opinions loosely held, which means we're not hyping outdated movement concepts. Instead, we're here with up-to-date and cutting-edge tools, evidence, and ideas to help you as a mover and a teacher. Welcome to the Movement Logic Podcast. I'm Laurel Beversdorf, and I'm here with a very special guest, Dr. Ben House. Dr. House has his PhD in nutritional sciences from UT Austin and has been working in nutrition and fitness for over 15 years. He has numerous publications in peer-reviewed scientific journals. Thank you for joining me today, Ben. Yes, it's great to be here. I'm honored to, to speak with you uh, about nutrition and try to keep it as simple as possible. Excited to be here. Thank you so much. I, I first learned about you from your partner, Stevie, who, uh, Stevie Ngagora, am I saying her last name right? I don't think I've ever said no, her yeah. name out loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, no, it's, it's Gongora. Everyone likes to say Gongora, but it is, it is Gongora. Gongora. Um, uh -huh. I follow her on Instagram. She has an amazing presence there. And she shared uh, a while back during the pandemic, actually, the lockdown, 
uh, your website, Deconstruct mm. Nutrition, that you, you had launched. It's a subscription-based website where you share tons of research and then your own commentary, which I find very down-to-earth and humorous and relatable, um, which is, from my perspective, it's actually kind of rare to have a writer like yourself who's able to take a piece of research that Okay, I'm just gonna be honest with you. Like, I find nutrition complex and at times boring. Um, but for you to be able to take this research uh, on nutrition, but also on strength training, bodybuilding, and on and and on the connection between nutrition and bodybuilding and strength training, and make it super relatable and easy to read, you write how you speak. I feel like this is very unique. So I subscribed and I uh, devoured a lot of your articles. And I and I can say that what I love so much about Deconstruct Nutrition and the way you write about nutrition research is that it's not preachy. That's number one. It's not preachy. You're not telling people what they should do. You're giving them the information and you're directing their awareness to what they should consider. It's also not dry or boring, which is just amazing. I've always found nutrition just a little bit <laughs> preachy at times. My mother was really into it. She wasn't super preachy about it, but she had a lot of you know, things that she was reading in. Uh, did, did you ever hear of Prevention Magazine? No, I haven't heard of it. Reader's Digest. So. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, I might be dating myself a little bit. I'm 42. My mother, uh, she's passed away, but she she was reading this around the time that she was about 42 years old, I would say. And she she was, you know, coming up with a lot of like what are probably now food myths um, about like not eating sugar, staying away from carbs, and then ver various other probably uh, ideas that are that still hold factual, still hold true. But she talked a lot about nutrition, and I just was never that interested in it. Although I have to say that I did consume a pretty healthy diet as a child, and so that was kind of like my interest my introduction to to conversing about nutrition thinking about nutrition was through my mother and she's very interested in it, kind of on an intellectual level actually and then my second kind of foray into nutrition was when i had to learn about it for the cscs exam for my personal trainer certification and i had to study the nutrition topic a lot because i actually knew the least about nutrition compared to everything else that i was going to be tested on and i became actually authentically interested in protein intake because <laughs> I really started to believe that it mattered to my pursuits of getting stronger. And so that right around that time, a little bit before that, actually, I subscribed to your platform. And like I said, I was really blown away by the way that you take this this super dense topic of nutrition science, and you address questions that are really common within your audience. They're maybe not as common questions that are, that uh, my audience or the Movement Logic audience is asking, but there's enough overlap there to where I got just so much out of so many of, of the articles. I love that it's evidence-based and that you're unpacking the research. You're looking at what you know some of the limitations are of the research and you get into the nitty gritty science without making it, you know, super overwhelming and you're, you're not preachy. So anyway, I want to share what you wrote in the prologue of this website, which I think kind of really nicely summarizes what you're about mm -hmm. with regards to, you know, nutrition education. So you write the simple side of simple and the algorithm have left us with perpetual food fear and a never ending parade of nutrition religions constantly at war with each other. On the simple side of complexity, all we want is for the noise to stop. It won't, but amid the ceaseless cacophony, at least we will be able to ask ourselves, what is the independent effect size of this intervention? <laughs> so let me just start off right now with a question. 
Dr. House, what is an independent effect size? Why is that important when we're looking at research? What does that mean? Yeah, I think the easiest way to explain this is healthy user bias, which is going to be near and dear to most people in the yoga centric world, right? Like, so if I pick out, say, vegetable intake, or the opposite of that would be red meat intake. So if we just look at observationally in the population, if you pick out vegetable intake, you're going to pick out a lot of other variables. Those people are going to have higher levels of physical activity. Um, they're going to probably eat less fast food. They're going to be a higher socioeconomic status. Whereas if you pick out red meat intake, they cluster with more sedentary behavior, more alcohol intake. So healthy behaviors are generally going to cluster together. And then also we have the, we have the halo effect, which is when someone starts a healthy behavior, and most people can relate to this, you generally just don't do one thing. You're like, I'm going to change my diet. I'm also going to start training. And, and so for the average person is most people starting on a health journey are not doing one thing at a time. Mm. They're, they're having multiple things that are happening. And then kind of whatever is their favorite, they will pick and say, oh, that's great. Um, that worked for me. And then they'll find other people that, that worked for them. And then they'll create a Facebook group. <laughs> And so that happens all the time. And so like you see it with carnivore, you see it with paleo, you see it with vegan, any anything that you can name. All of these diets have more in common than they have against each other. They're for whole unprocessed food. And then they just have different things that they demonize um, in different ways. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think if, you, if you're willing to be objective and think about, okay, like what are we demonizing? How much water does that hold? Because – Sugar, for instance, like sugar is innocuous. Mm. Like it, if you get very, very sick, they will literally put glucose, which isn't sugar. They will put glucose in directly into your veins. Like then that will help you survive. <laughs> right. Um, and, and sugar is just a disaccharide, which is a fancy word for sugars um, of fructose and glucose put together. Um, and then your body digests that. So like there's nothing in, inherently wrong with sugar dietarily. Now, hyperglycemia which is high blood sugar. This is why it gets complex. Eating sugar doesn't necessarily mean hyperglycemia. The more muscle mass you have, the, think of muscle as a sink for glucose, for, for instance. Like, so the more muscle that you have, the more glucose you're going to be able to store without overflowing your sink. If you overflow your sink, you get hyperglycemia. The water goes in places that it shouldn't, and it's pretty disastrous to the human body over time. Um, and so that's why hyperglycemia is inflammatory, but sugar is not inflammatory. So that kind of it, the, the complexity and the nuance there, like, yes, high blood sugar can be inflammatory, but sugar itself is not inflammatory. Yeah. Super complex, super complex. The noise will not stop, right? <laughs> we, we have to, we have to kind of talk about everything while we're talking about one thing, whenever we're talking about a complex system, it's, it's really difficult. Would you say to actually isolate an independent effect size then? I, I don't want to get lost in the weeds of like research design, say like energy density which is think of not energy dense foods as vegetables. Like a potato has an energy density of maybe 0.7 calories per gram. And then a potato chip has an energy density of four to five for the same weight. Like you took the water out of it and you added oil and you, you essentially raised the energy density 400 to 600%. And so now if you ate the same volume, you would get 600% more calories. That's something you can isolate is what you're saying. Yes. Energy density is a variable, right? When we look at processed, ultra processed food versus whole foods in the research, they will try to make the energy density the same. 
And to do that, they have to do very odd things to ultra processed food to make it less energy dense. Like they have to add fiber lemonade. They have to do water preloads. So they're trying to isolate the effect of ultra processed food outside of energy density. Um, and so that's what science does is it tries to very and very rigidly try to figure out through the process of elimination, what is causing what. Mm -hmm. And it is very hard to do that in nutrition because if I increase your protein intake, what else do I do? Like, what are those foods? What did I take away? Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's, if you go vegan, yes, you went vegan, but you also probably took things out of your diet, right? Like you changed something for something else. Um, mm. If you go carnivore, you took out carbohydrates to an excessive degree. And now you're only eating a lower residue, probably higher fat, probably very high protein diet. So like, was it carnivore or was it the things that you took away? Yeah. I want to relate this to, to what I think my audience can, can kind of draw a parallel to is that a lot of the people listening right now probably have suffered what they, what they deemed a yoga related injury. And then they, the, the story is that they healed this yoga-related injury by starting to strength train. But my question has often been, was it the strength training that helped you out of pain or was it the time that you were now not spent doing asana and instead doing the strength training? Was it actually the subtraction of the asana that helped, the addition of the strength training, both or some other variable entirely? And I think a lot of times we speak with a lot of certainty about what causes something to happen, right? And whenever we're dealing with a complex system, which is a system of systems, that's our body, a system of systems, it's extremely difficult to show causality because everything is related to multiple things happening at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's a beautiful example. As a coach, I try to avoid the writing reflex as much as possible. Like, so someone if comes to me with, like with myths and things, I, in a consult, I don't really debunk those. I just like take them in and, and we just keep talking and eventually like they'll fall away. You call this the right the writing reflex? I've always thought of the writing reflex as like the way our vestibular system, our eyes, like help us keep our head upright all the time. But what are what are you what are you calling the writing reflex? Uh, so MI is like motivational interviewing. This is a term from that. Uh, so the writing reflex is like someone says like, oh, carbs are carbs make you gain weight. Like that, that is purely wrong. Okay. <laughs> if someone, it, they could, but it's, it's not like a cause, like carbs don't automatically create weight gain. I understand why someone has that belief because they associate ultra processed foods with carbohydrates. They read prevention, they read prevention magazine. <laughs> yes. Yes. Like there's, there's plenty. We now have hundreds of studies showing that you can lose weight eating a lot of carbohydrates to an extent that is appropriate for the person. So if someone says that, like, I will, not, I'm not going to like interject, correct them. I'm just going to take it in and be like, okay, let's create a plan that works for you. Like it, it doesn't matter. That's the fastest way that I put someone on defense on the nutrition world is like, I destroy their teddy bear or their belief structure. Yeah. And so for, for your comment on injury, I mean, I don't think there's something more complex than injury for the human body, like biopsychosocial model of pain. Like at a certain point, like, is it important? What you did worked. Right. But I think as a scientist and as a coach, we want to know why that is mm. because we want to repeat it. Mm. Or we want to know that it works for a large population rather than just N of one, right? 
Yeah. And, and I think you could make an argument in that specific circumstance if someone had a yoga related injury. One thing that we do know about injuries is like have a new experience. Mm-hmm. You go to a new experience that moving your body in a way that does not give you pain. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's what happened there is we moved to a new experience. You could probably find just as many people who got injured in the weight room and went to yoga, had a new experience moving their body and <laughs> they were relieved of pain. I've, I've definitely said that before. <laughs> and same thing in the diet world. Um, and that's what's really, really tough about social media is because now it's not like some random person in Prevention Magazine that's telling you this. It's someone that's relatable. It's someone that you know. It's like, well, mm. maybe I should try that. Hyper charismatic. Yeah. Now you're whoever it was, your aunt or your sister's cousin it sees great results, posts about it. Mm. And you're like, wow, I should do that. And that's how humans learn. That's how we – that makes total sense to do that mm. um, and to trust that. but. If that's where the buck stops, it's no problem for the individual, but I think it gets it gets problematic when you're preachy and you want to share the thing that worked for you and then other people argue with you and and it gets, just gets really nauseating. Yes, uh, agreed. Agreed. <laughs> so I want to back up, Ben, and I want to ask you maybe a more personal question, which is actually, how did you get started with nutrition science? Why did you choose that as your subject of study. Yeah. Uh, so I'm from the Midwest, originally about 90 minutes north of Chicago uh, in a town called Racine, Wisconsin. Hey, I'm from Wisconsin too. Did we know this about each other? I don't know. I don't think so. Where are you from? Yeah, I, well, I'm 30 miles north of Wisconsin Dells from Adams Friendship, a very small town. Have you heard of it? Yeah. My dad grew up there. No. Yeah. yeah. What? Yeah. What? Oh my gosh. Uh, my uncle lived there. Yeah, my great so, uncle lived in Adams. How how long ago was your dad in Adams Friendship? He might he might have had like my parents as teachers. I'm thinking. Uh, potentially, yeah. He lived in Adams until I think he was in uh, younger grade school, and then he moved to Toma, Wisconsin. This would have been like in the '60s. Okay, okay, no, then then if he never made it to high school, he probably did not have my parents as teachers. That's just amazing that we're discovering this right now. <laughs> anyway, we're cheeseheads. And so little things like that, like relatedness, right? Like that happens on the internet, and it's it's like that person has the same first name as you. Like all of these things, and they're, they're super weird. Like if your name starts with a J, you are more likely to marry someone whose name starts with a J. So like none none of these are problematic at the individual level, but at the population level, they do become problematic because all right, you have this relatable thing. Now there's this weave of trust, right? And Mm -hmm. now this person, if they give you advice or something like that, you're more likely to defend them. You're more likely to hold what they say in higher esteem. Um, And humans have a very, very hard time figuring out who is, but more right out of two people that sound smart. Mm -hmm. Humans have a very hard time doing that. (laughs) Um, And they like authoritativeness. Like one thing that's very annoying for people with me is I'm not very, I'm not going to like kickstand on my degree. Like I'm, I'm not going to do that. Like I'm a doctor. Listen to me. Here's the evidence. Let's go through the evidence together. Whereas right. people want that. They want like, oh, this person said that. I trust this person. Mm. Yeah. I see that a lot. I see that a lot in the movement world as well, where my teacher said that this was true. Therefore it must be true. And now I'm really upset that you're saying it's not true because you've attacked not only my, uh, you know, source of knowledge and what I believe, but like my identity too. So how did you get started with nutrition and, and, and why did you choose nutrition? And then 
Also fitness. From Wisconsin, never thought I could make nutrition a career. That's where I was going with the Wisconsin bit. Why? Why would you think that? <laughs> Brought some beer and pizza? <laughs> I, I was weird. I was really weird. Like I loved the gym since I was like 12 to 13 years old. I mean, my mom was a baker, like sixth grade. I was a little chubby. I didn't have any skills, resources, competencies. I didn't have any of these things. So I just tried to work harder while eating massive amounts of honey bunches, votes, and toast. Um, <laughs> People always ask you, like, if you could change one thing about your life, what would you change? Man, if I could just give it myself a smidgen of what I know now, because I had all the effort, it just wasn't directed in a very efficient or effective way. And I still, I still made, for all intents and purposes, I ate a ton of protein, I squatted a lot, like, I, I made a lot of progress. Like, so even though I had a lot of things right, that effort still got me pretty far. I wanted to know more, and in the early late nineties, early two thousands, like we pretty much only had muscle magazines. Um, <laughs> and, and then, so got into college and I was, I was pre-med was going to go to med school. I was like, yeah, that's, that's an esteem track. I'll go, go be a medical doctor. Took some time. I shadowed an orthopedic surgeon and everybody was the same. Like the patients were different, but they were kind of all the same. They were all overweight, you know, pre-diabetic, new knee, new hip. Like I was like, why, why don't we get on the front side of this? We're fixing all these problems that I don't really have an interest in. How do we get on the front side of these problems? Because I was always interested in training and nutrition. It was always like this, this side thing that really wasn't involved in my academic career. I put the MD on, on hold. I was accepted, but I just elected not to go and then started a master's in nutrition. And while I was in my master's in nutrition, I applied to UT Austin, which I didn't know was very, very hard to get into. It was a top, it's, it's a top five school in graduate school. <laughs> um, and so like I didn't get in. I, we were in Austin, Texas. And I was like, I'm just going to apply to UT, um, not knowing anything. I wasn't a very big planner at this. I was kind of a planner, but not to the stage that I am now. And so Kathy McWilliams, who was like in charge of the of the nutrition department, I, I applied in the juncture. So I applied it at, for spring semester. And I didn't get in. And then she called me in the summer. I was like, this is weird. Why is this, why is this academic lady calling me? Um, I, was like, I was like, I didn't get in. Is she just going to rub it in my face? Like, what's happening here? Uh, <laughs> like, hey, you didn't get in. But she called me and she said, uh, can you please resubmit your application? She's like, you don't have to pay any money. Just resubmit your application. And the next day I got an acceptance letter. Um, and so the reason was, as I speak, I spoke Spanish. Um, and, and so they needed Spanish speaking people Oh, for for wow. specifics, so I was I was brought into UT for a specific study that got funded by a by an investigator, um, and so that's how Amazing. that's how I got into UT. Very cool, very cool. I, I also speak Spanish. I'm finding all of these parallels, Ben. I trust you more and more and more. The more we talk, I'm just believing everything you're saying now. No, I'm just kidding. That's the hardest <laughs> thing I've ever done. Uh, like academically, I gave an eight hour presentation in Spanish. I had a translator, but I didn't use him for like the first four hours. And then the last four hours, my mind was shot. And I was like, yep. had to, had, I was like, I was forgetting words. I was like, bubble, what is bubble? And he'd be like, yeah, Ooh, huh? yeah. It, there's, it's a different level of exhaustion when you're teaching or talking or conversing in a different language than you would experience if you were doing it in your native language. It's, it's unreal. All right. I want to ask you our kind of first sort of you know, nitty gritty nutrition question. And it's going to be super broad. And I said this to Ben before the interview, I was like, the, the only type of question that is appropriate for me to ask is a broad one, <laughs> because that's where I'm starting, right? I'm starting from 
uh, a place of really not knowing a whole lot about this topic, to be honest. Okay, so I'm going to ask you just a super broad question. What is nutrition, Ben? What does it include? Uh, it is the study of what you eat. So you could further break that down into macronutrition or micronutrition. You want to tell us a little bit about what those words mean, macro and micronutrition? Yeah. So nutrition is, is how we essentially feed ourselves. And so macronutrition would be broken down into the three macronutrients, which is fat, carbohydrates, and protein. And then micronutrition is the the vitamins and minerals that, that humans need to... Not not necessarily survive. We can kind of survive without them, um, but not get diseases like rickets or insufficiencies. For for your audience, like the number one mineral insufficiency in the world is iron. Heme iron is going to be more digestible. Heme iron is in meat. When we think about nutrition, there's there's all these components. There's there's adequate macronutrition, um, and then there's adequate micronutrition. Um, so a lot of the, the nutrition world is is arguing about macros. There's um, this idea that, that pizza or a kale salad are the same if you match up the macros, macros, which is very hard to do anyways, possible in theory. But that's just macronutrition, but that's not getting into micronutrition. One thing that happens in the internet with this type of broad, like what is nutrition? You get into what are calories. We won't get into it, but it's, it's basically how much energy it takes to heat up uh, some amount of water. That is what a the calorie is. It's a unit of energy. So when you look at a food label, it is going to give you however many calories that thing is. It's plus or minus 20% if it's a packaged product. And then your body is going to metabolize that. So that's not how much energy that your body gets from that food. Calories do absolutely matter. The first law of thermodynamics is true. It's a law of physics. It's a law. So calories in does equal calories out. Mm. But the equation is insanely complex on both sides of the of that equal sign. When you say calories in equals calories out, like energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly. Okay. Because I've also heard that like whether or not you gain weight is dependent almost entirely on whether or not you're calorie expenditure mm -hmm. is higher or lower than your calorie intake. So if you have a high calorie intake and low energy expenditure, you're going to gain weight. Uh, if they're equal, you're not going to gain weight or lose weight. And then if you have a low calorie intake relative to calorie ex expenditure, you're going to lose weight. You summarized that perfectly. Oh, okay. So that, that equation is correct. Like if you are going to gain mass, you by definition have to be in an energy surplus. If you are losing weight, you by definition have to be in an energy deficit. The, the problem is people are very, 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 very bad at quantifying their energy intake. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you don't know how much of that energy will be metabolized. Mm. Like so natural almonds, you're going to metabolize about 48% less energy than almond butter. So it's the same food, but you just processed it more. So like even if those calories are the same – on a box, you're still going to metabolize less energy from them. And everyone is different in how much energy they metabolize. By definition, you have to be in an energy deficit if you want to lose weight. Our ability to quantify both sides of that equation on the individual level are crazy bad. Bad, bad, bad. Like your pedometer, remember I said like authoritativeness, like people love it. My aura ring says this. My pedometer says this. No, that thing could be right, but it also could be very, very wrong. There's huge 
huge error bars in that. Same thing with MyFitnessPal. Like the average person is going, the average person is going to underreport by 400 to 1,000 calories. Like mm. even dietitians underreport, but even me, I'm probably underreporting by 10 to 20 percent. Huh? I have a PhD in nutrition. Right. Got you. I'm not. I'm not sure how helpful that was to people, but a lot of people when they get into nutrition, it's for a reason. We're goal oriented. They want to do something. Like they probably want to change their physique in some way, um, or they want to become healthier. Yes, right. Or or they want to perform better. So for me, uh, when I was an actress, I was interested in in aesthetics. Right. I wanted to lose weight, and I wanted to be thinner and thinner and thinner. And then I learned, you know, through a little bit more study in nutrition, taking the CSCS, that I maybe could up some of my protein intake a bit and for health reasons, but also because I really wanted to get stronger. I wanted to put more muscle on my body so that I would be able to do certain things that I couldn't do, like pull-ups, for example. And I knew that like adding muscle mass to my body was going to be crucial to my ability to do some of this stuff that just required sheer strength that I lacked. Um, so I think there's there's the aesthetic side of nutrition. There's the health side, right? My um, <clears throat> my husband is watching his diet because of some feedback that he got from his doctor, right? And then there's also the performance side of nutrition. And this leads me to my next question, right? A lot of people listening to the Movement Logic podcast are movers. A lot of them are professional movers. They're teachers, right? We've defined nutrition. So maybe what we can do is 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 take a step back here, define fitness, and then I'd love to hear what the connection is specifically between nutrition and fitness. Fitness is, is individual. So you, you threw out a lot of words there and like my reductionist mind wants to like define them like, okay, muscle mass, strength, what, are, what kind of strength? Because strength is rep range and task specific. There's lots of ways to get stronger. Like you can get stronger through neural mechanisms. You can get stronger through muscular mechanisms. You can get stronger through soft tissue mechanisms like plyometrics. You can get stronger by improving your coordination, right? Yes. So those things happen. Like if you're thinking about time scales, these are all debated. I think they're all happening all the time, just like energy systems. And so how nutrition really gets into fitness is like a prototypical thing that I see in Austin is like I do yoga and I rock climb. Um, okay. Yeah. And so like I, in my mind, I'm like, okay, that's their fitness. This is benefit. It's your goal, whatever that you want to do. We can break it down into different components, but do you care about strength? What strength do you care about? What tasks do you want to do? Right. Mm -hmm. And then once you've selected the things that you want to do with your body, then you can look at how nutrition can potentially support or take away from those goals. Right. And that's, that's what I do as a coach. Like, so yesterday I had the opportunity to consult with a pro soccer player and we kind of got like, should he gain upper body mass? Like, is that a thing that is going to benefit him for his sport? Like he has to carry it around. We were talking about like, where would he want to be body composition wise? Where's the best place for him for his particular sport and what he wants to do. If he wants to keep his muscle mass the same, then he actually can probably not eat as much protein. Maybe like he's an endurance athlete, maybe like 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kilogram. If he wants to increase his muscle mass, he'd probably want to increase his protein intake to somewhere between 1.6 and 1.8 grams per kilogram. And so that's where it's like, can nutrition support the person? Yes, but it depends on what that person wants to do with their body. Fuel-wise, we all have plenty of fat. Fat is burned in low-intensity states. Everybody's different, the amount of glycogen that we can store, but you're going to deplete glycogen, resistance training, high-level sprint efforts, things like that. And so that's why in those types of scenarios, 
and those types of sports, carbohydrates are very important. Like the body can replete glycogen, which is the storage form of carbohydrate without any food, which is mind boggling to a lot of people. It can do it. It can actually do it fasting, which is crazy, but it does it a lot faster when you give it the things that it needs and the fuel that it needs. And so that's why carbohydrates are going to be very, very important for those types of athletes, like CrossFitters, any type of field sport athlete. Whereas a powerlifter, they can get by without actually eating a lot of carbohydrates because they're not using that system very much. And so they're training, you know, one, threes, fives, eights would be like a marathon. Powerlifting is very heavy strength training. I just want to say that. Squat, bench, deadlift. Yeah, the big three. The big three. Their carbohydrates aren't necessarily going to be as important. Now, I do think that you can be clearly be an ultra endurance athlete and do keto. Can you can you tell us what keto is? Uh, so keto is eating so few carbohydrates. This is actually like so few is is a giant asterisk. Uh, for most people, it would be so few that your body starts creating ketones, which your brain can use as a backup fuel. Your body can use it too. But you're eating so few carbohydrates and such little protein because your body can create carbohydrates from protein mm -hmm. that your body gets into a state where it's creating this backup fuel. It's creating ketone bodies, beta hydroxybutyrate, lots of words. Do people do the keto diet predominantly to manage their body composition or for performance? Keto comes in and out of vogue. Like all of these diets are essentially recycled. They, they essentially just come back. I think keto originally propagated in the late 1800s uh, was the first time that like a low carbohydrate diet was was found to be helpful. Uh, and then research in the 20s, then obviously research with Atkins, and now we yeah. have the big resurgence again. And and so most people, I would say, are interested in keto from a body composition perspective. Right. The best way to think about it is like keto does work for weight loss. We have lots of head-to-head -head trials of like keto versus veganism, and they both seem to perform equally well. Can you say that? Can you say that again? This will this will blow people's minds. <laughs> yeah, I think like, it will. <laughs> like when, when you stack up like low carbohydrate diets, very high fat, versus that's keto, right? Low carb, high fat. Semantically, I would say it's low carb, high fat. There's nothing about ketosis that makes anything better for fat loss. It's not like we have these studies now, like keto versus slightly not keto, uh, and keto doesn't win. So there's nothing about ketosis that maximizes fat loss. Uh, you will maximize utilizing fat as a fuel, but that's just because you're eating more fat. Uh, on the flip side, if you look at veganism, which is predominantly very high carbohydrate, low fat, mm. um, both of these would be moderate protein intake diets on paper. Um, mm. Keto would probably have more bioavailable protein. Veganism, you'd have to be smart about protein sourcing because your plant proteins are going to be lower in certain amino acids. So you want to pair your proteins effectively. Got it. But when but when we compare these diets head to head um, for weight loss, neither one of them wins when you equate for calories. And so when you equate for calories, both of these diets can result in equal amounts of weight loss. You will get people who just have a propensity to either one, like one works better for them. Maybe they like meat, maybe they like vegan. Um, and so that's where these camps come from. But if I put people in a controlled environment and I cook them all their food and I matched everything as well as I possibly could, mm -hmm. like you can you can get results doing either of those approaches. So when we look at nutrition for the purpose of being more fit from the standpoint of strength, okay, what starts to emerge in my population 
is a conflict then between this third goal, which is aesthetics. Okay. So we're going to set aside competition for a bit because it's actually not as relevant to this audience. And we're going to talk specifically about health and aesthetics because what I hear a lot in my population of movers and uh, teachers is that there's this fear amongst an overwhelmingly, you know, female population that if we build muscle, we get bigger. Okay. And in so many ways over the course of our entire lives, women have been told that they're actually more desirable when they're smaller, when they're thinner, when they weigh less, when they, um, often also say less <laughs> and think less about things. <laughs> so um, that's, that's what's maybe more mainstream communicated to women. In my community, there um, is this movement now toward uh, a little bit of fuck that. Let's, let's actually put some muscle on our body. Let's get stronger. This conflict though is always there because it's deeply entrenched in the ideals of our capitalistic society, which um, champions thinness and whiteness and wealth. All of this is wrapped up in status and power. In focusing on strength, building muscle is one of the main ways we get stronger. It's not the only way, right? Strength is multifactorial. Strength is complex, just like our body is. It's a, it's a physiological outcome, right? That is dependent on many different factors. But what can you say to women who don't want to get bulky, but they want to get stronger, one of my tenants is I'll just take whatever motivations people have and, and I'll try to help them on that, on that journey. That's my job. I'm a Sherpa. Um, I don't try to move their field goal. Um, and t t I understand moving field goals. Um, I'm definitely not the person to move that field goal. So you mentioned like, Oh, let's just talk about aesthetics and health. Health is hard to define. We probably want to define health as, as biomarkers, like not BMI. Body mass index will have a, a determinant of your health. It is somewhat predictive. Either, even your muscle mass and your fat mass are not going to dictate your health. It's, it's, um, it is a proxy measurement. Um, if we want to measure health, we might as well measure it with like blood glucose control, lipids, mm. inflammation, things like that. But if you want to lose weight for health purposes, we need to measure health. And then I can tell you if losing weight will potentially make you healthier. I can't do that without biomarkers. I, I legit... I could tell you probabilistically, like if you're over this body fat percentage, it, it would likely make you healthier to lose this amount of weight. But I cannot, unless I have markers of health, I cannot track that. So I know a, I know a lot of people in my community do want to lose weight. Um, but what I hear more about is that they want to get stronger. And then, then the competing goals in their mind are, I want to get stronger, but I don't want to get bigger. Do, do you see what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, yeah. They, they want to be more fit in terms of being more stronger, but they don't want to get bigger. So they want aesthetics and strength. If I'm speaking to that avatar, we created these three ideas, right? Like performance, health, and aesthetics, right? Could you get healthy by just focusing on strength and aesthetics? It's possible you could also be unhealthy doing those two things. Individuals, I'm going to treat as individuals. So I'm going to be like, okay, how strong are you? What do you want to do? Would losing mass help that? If your measure of strength is a pull-up, losing mass is going to help you. As long, as long as it's not lean mass, right? As long as it's not the muscle you're losing. Yeah. I mean, you can make an argument like, like calisthenics, people don't have very big legs. Like if I wanted to be really good at calisthenics, my legs would have to shrink a phenomenal amount. Strength, I'm going to try to define that outcome. Aesthetics, I'm going to try to define that outcome. Like what are you after? Okay. You don't want to get bigger. Where don't you want to get bigger? How can I not train that? 
and most females will say like, I don't want my quads to get bigger. I don't want my traps to get bigger. Right. And so I'll be like, okay, let's not do that. Muscles are going to get bigger. If you train them, they're going to respond to loading. They're going to try respond to mechanical tension. I'm going to take whatever someone's wants to do. And I'm going to try to help them do that thing. I hear, I hear a lot of times that women want to get tone. So when you hear, I want to be tone, but I don't want to be bulky. What do you think? In that scenario, generally they want to lose body fat. Okay. But can you be tone without building muscle? Yeah. You would just have to get more and more shredded. It just depends on like how- Shredded, shredded meaning lose fat or shredded meaning build muscle? My understanding is it's kind of a little bit of both, right? Aesthetically, like everybody hates bodybuilding, but bodybuilding, you can learn a lot from bodybuilding extremes. Why do, why do people hate bodybuilding? Wait a second, back up. Well, what is bodybuilding? We're gonna back up again and like define that. And then how is it different from strength training? And why, and why do people hate it? Uh, bodybuilding and physical capability used to be intertwined. Um, and then like in the 40s, they bodybuilding became its own thing, which is just aesthetics. And so bodybuilding is is really, whether we call it a sport or not, I think it has lots of sport elements. It is symmetry. It is how much muscle mass you have, how lean can you get, essentially. For to be good at bodybuilding, you have to get to unhealthy levels of leanness. Mm. Um, just like like just like any sport is a contact sport, it has negatives. Is bodybuilding predominantly aesthetic? Is it to be good at bodybuilding? Like, are you being good at it or are you looking good? No, I, I, like, so people who don't, who have never bodybuilded will say these types of things. Posing is an art form. Ah, posing. Like you can be big and not look big. Ah. Bodybuilding, there is a huge smoke and mirrors element to it. Like there is a very high skill component. It's about being able to control your muscles, right? You are isometrically contracting your muscles. Sometimes 30 to 40 minutes you are sweating. Like. Oh, wow. You have to be able to control muscles that you've probably never felt before. Like you have to be able to turn your lats on in a moment notice, make yourself look like as wide as a door. <laughs> like there's lots of things that you have to be able to do. But to get ready for that, this is where it's like there's a, there's a huge preparation aspect. Um, generally getting bigger mm -hmm. will help you because you will put on more muscle mass. And then when you take the fat away, you will look like you have more muscle. If you don't have a lot of muscle, you just get leaner and you don't really aesthetically look what people are after. Like, so if someone doesn't have a lot of muscle and they just get leaner, they just kind of look emaciated. And so you need amount of muscle mass that someone wants for their look. Right. And, and then like we're humans, we care about our, like we care about how we look. If you're single, you probably care about more about how you look. I'm not trying to tell people not to care how they look, but body image 60% of females hold a negative body image. 40% of males hold a negative body image. Like we're always comparing ourselves to other people. I don't, the crazy thing is like, will weight loss make you happy? Will weight loss make you more happy with your physique? The answer is it might or it might not. Like it depends on the person. If I play both sides of it, like losing weight, getting the physique that you also always wanted could lead to more weight checking, more figure checking. Like you could be worried about losing it, Right. So there's, there's lots of pros and cons on, on the aesthetic side. And so your original question is like, all right, so we have a female person who wants to look more toned or wants to. They want to get stronger, but they don't want to be bulky. That's it right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what I need to do is I did, I need to define what bulky is. If bulky is big quads and big traps, we can try to train around that a hundred percent. 
you don't want a giant back. You're not going to train your lats. You're going to maybe take it a little bit easier on your rhomboids. Like you can do these things to some degree. And then strength, we have to, like, what do you mean by strength? Like with strength, you keep trying to come back to like the performance side of it. Like, what do you want to be able to do? Well, you you have to. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Like what yeah. is strong? Like, do you want to be, do you want to be able to do more handstand pushups? Do you want to like, do you want to do a single leg squat? Strength is rep range and task specific. Um, once we define what you want from a strength protocol, then we can try to build that strength. Is that strength, you know, more pushups? Is that strength a pull-up? Is that strength being able to squat your body weight? Is it some type of other thing? A lot of times what, um, I hear, at least in my population that I serve, which is uh, probably 40 to 65, age 40 to 65, is that um, women want to be able to age well, like they want to stay capable. They want to maintain bone density, bone mass. They want to maintain muscle mass because as we age, we know that we start to lose muscle mass at a faster rate. We start to lose bone density, especially um, around perimenopause. And menopause is estrogen levels uh, decrease. And so I guess being strong might be a stand-in for, I want to live well, right? I want to live a higher quality life for longer. I would try to define what you want to do. If what you want to do is maintain muscle mass throughout the life course, training for that is easy. That is a goal that allows me to pick that up. There's tons of different ways to do that. There's so many different ways to train for that. Now, if you have an aesthetic goal and you want to be stronger and less bulky, what does that mean? No one can help you. You probably can't help yourself if you have nebulous definitions of what you want. If you want to lose weight for aesthetic purposes, there's a higher chance that you will be unsuccessful. If you want to lose weight for health purposes, there's a higher chance that you will be successful. Why? Why do you think that is? So this gets into like different types of motivational theories. Like extrinsic Mm. motivators are generally going to be less powerful than Mm. intrinsic motivators. Like if I'm doing something for someone else or how I want people to think of me, that probably has, it can work obviously, like social cultural dynamics can work, but it probably has less power than like, I want to do this to be a better father. I want to do this to be a better mother. I want to do this to be a better grandfather or grandmother so I can pick up my grandchild. Like that's why I want to train train. You think that nutrition is similar in the sense that like the way we use food and think of food can be driven by external and internal motivations. Extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation, this continuum, this is, there's, there's lots of different types of motivation. Like I'll give you an intrinsic motivator, which is, which is, which is me. So I love to train. Mm -hmm. Training gives me joy intrinsically, like just training. I love Mm -hmm. to train. So I eat the way that I eat to support my training. For my group, all right, they they don't necessarily love to train as specifically as maybe what you mean that to mean, but they they love to move and they want to stay moving for as long as possible in all the ways that they want to. You know, they want to go on that ten mile hike and they want to be able to, uh, you know, move to another house and lift heavy boxes and they want to be able to pick up their grandkids and they want to be able to play uh, soccer and they want to be able to run around or whatever it is. Like they want to be able to do a pull up maybe too, right? So so. When you eat in order to do what you love, how does this change how you eat? How does it change what you eat? And what can you say to the people listening about approaching food, approaching nutrition from this standpoint that would maybe be more from the angle of intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic? What, what, what do you flip? How do you think about it differently? 
if I want to utilize nutrition as a way to live a longer, potentially longer, better, more, now you're talking, we've, we've moved the conversation to health span and lifespan um, and like the ability to be autonomous into old age. If I am training for that and I am a 40 to 65 year old female, I would get a bone density scan. Um, that would be square one. Where are we at? I'm annoying. I want to define variables. Is this a problem? Is it not a problem? Um, and then I'm going to create the micronutrition to support that. So do I have the things to build bone? Do I have the things, do I need to build muscle? How much muscle do I have? Um, I'm, I'm super annoying. Fat-free mass index is a measure of muscle mass on the frame. Like, where are you on that? We know that once females get lower than about 14 on an FFMI, I'm worried. On an FFMI, what is that? Fat-free mass index. You can search that, Google it, and you can put in your weight. You also need a body composition metric. Fat-free mass is everything except fat. So it's like bone, muscle, soft tissue. Okay. Correct. Correct. Okay. Uh, and so this is where you get to the obesity paradox, um, where overweight seems to be protective, probably due to a lot of things, but one of those is muscle mass. Hmm. Can you say more about that? Uh, so in observational trials, it looks like overweight people will live longer than normal weight people. And this is probably due to a lot of extenuating factors, uh, cancer um, being one of them. And so when you control for muscle mass, this generally falls away. Like I said, BMI is a, is a has terrible roots. It's just a metric. Um, BMI is, is what it is. It's a measure of your body mass compared to your height. So there's going to be the it's actually going to be U-shaped in the opposite direction. So like not having a lot of fat mass will be deleterious. And then you're going to hit this break point where it probably doesn't matter. And then having more fat mass than a certain point, than a threshold, essentially the, your individual threshold for fat and where you get that spillover effect. And then the same thing with muscle. Muscle probably has the opposite U-shaped curve where less muscle is going to be deleterious. And then probably more muscle at a certain standpoint will be deleterious because Yes, because your heart has to pump against all of that muscle mass. Heart disease is the number one thing that kills both males and females. We don't know where that breakpoint is because that population is few and far between, um, and it's hard to isolate them. But there probably is also a breakpoint for longevity in terms of how, like, having too much muscle mass. We we don't know where that is. You want to have enough muscle mass so that you can be autonomous. That means like to do the things that you want to do. Uh, and then you want to try to maintain that throughout the life course. So you defining those, what are the things that I want to do? I don't think a pull-up is probably necessary for that. No. <laughs> um, being, if I'm like thinking about my mom or my dad, it's like being able to trap bar deadlift, maybe 135 or like pick up two 50 pound suitcases. Like that could be a good thing. And, mm -hmm. and if you're in the strength and conditioning field, like these metrics are probably way lower than you want them to be. Yes. Um, and I, I think that's humbling. Like if we measure like strength in nursing home studies, it's like number of chair stands in a minute. Like it's not, it's not deadlifting. It's just like no, how many times can you yeah. get up off the chair? Yeah. Again, strength is rep range and task breaks task specific. Like if you want to be able to hike 10 miles, you want zone two low level cardiovascular and muscle mm -hmm. endurance. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I'm always going to come back to like, all right, I'm going to make Jill fit. I'm going to make Roger fit. I'm going to make whatever. I'm going to make the fitness plan for that person, mm -hmm. um, and what they want to do and, and in the short term and the long term. Mm. All right. A couple more questions for you. What are some of the biggest misunderstandings people have about nutrition and health? Yeah, so I think the biggest one for this talk is like thinner is automatically healthier. 
that like that's something that's been in vogue for a really long time. That is not the case. At some point, thinner thinner will be. Like I said, it gets complex. It will probably be metabolically healthier, healthier meaning your lipids and your and your blood sugar could be better. But hormonally, appetite, sociologically, physiologically, like there will be a lot of negative consequences to getting thinner. And this is something that is critically important on social media because we compare ourselves to other people. Mm. You could get very thin and you could take 365 pictures and you could post them throughout the entire year. Like, yeah. um, and, and so- in other words, you'll look thin for a year, but <laughs> yeah, but, but you're not, like it's an illusion. And, and so, like thinness is doesn't is not synonymous with health. There are very wide brackets where people can be healthy, um, and then outside of those brackets, it has to do with like individual risk, like an individual risk tolerance. And, and so, like if you get into like shame and blame and anything like that, they, those don't necessarily move behavior. So it doesn't matter. That's why I constantly come back to let's quantify, let's, let's, let's be annoying. Let's, let's attach a metric to this thing so that we can start to move the needle. Females, it looks like they can be healthy in the low twenties, even in the teens on, on a percent body fat, and they could be likely healthy into the mid thirties. Um, so females are going to, they are responsible physiologically for turning calories into babies. Uh, that's what allowed us to, you know, take over the world as, as apes. They are meant to have more fat on their frame. A lot of people demonize fat, but I'll, I'll like fat is something that humans evolved to as, as a protective mechanism mm -hmm. against food shortages, like, and cold, uh, to, to a certain, <laughs> yeah, to a certain degree. Um, but I would say even like, so I, a bonobo, how much fat does a female bonobo have? It's it's single digits. Like mm. it's it's very hard for a, a female human to get into single digits. They'll probably die. Mm. Um, like even like shredded bodybuilders on stage, females are like twelve percent. Mm. Male bonobos have no fat. They're like even in captivity, they're like one percent. So like our ability to store fat on our frame is one of the things that allowed us to take over the world. It's a human. It's a human quality. In other words. It, it like there's other things that store fat. Obviously, other animals that store fat. But in in terms in terms of the of the great apes, we are unique in our body. Ah. Our, ability, our our ability to store fat. We're like humans are not very good at anything. We're like we're not very strong. But we're <laughs> we're good at we're good at walking long distances, and we're we're good. We probably found tools, and we're very good at cooperating. Like none of these things are like very sexy, and they're I probably. <laughs> They're probably all backfiring on us. That's um, do you and, have any? Do you have any other misunderstandings out there about nutrition and health that you want to call attention to? But the one, the one you just named is a gold. Thank you. I would say if if you are like bought into dietary dogma, and I I've bought into dietary dogma multiple times in my life. Like um, it's it's very it feels good. Like being righteous feel, always feels good. Um, and, and so I would really take a look at the other side of whatever you don't believe. I think one of the best ways to refute yourself is like, look at the positives of something that you don't like. If you've fallen for carnivore diet, for instance, and no, no, no beef on that. Like, like I understand. <laughs> Pun intended. Like, <laughs> there's. There are there is a subset of the population that has large amounts of GI distress, and they do do better on a lower residue diet. So they have found that this does ostensibly make them feel better. So they feel better 
eating lower residue foods. But I would say if vegetables were so horrific, if they were this terrible thing, then we would have to see some signal of that mm-hmm. in in the literature. Like we we see no signal of that. We see no mm-hmm. signal. Carnivore diet people say you shouldn't eat vegetables. <laughs> so like, car- like also if the diet, like if your dietary dogma like is, is, is very restrictive and then it, it like it comes back. So like carnivore was only meat. Then it was like meats, eggs, dairy, bananas. Anytime like you're moving things and that, like now we're just going to demify vegetables. Anytime you're just demifying one food group, I have no problem. Like if I'm going to demify one thing, it's ultra processed foods. Mm-hmm. But what are we going to do with them? Like you're going to, you like you now you're inside of every cultural norm. Like what do you, I'm, I'm all for a sugar tax, but does it work? Does it actually reduce sugar consumption? Does it actually do the things that we want to do? That's why I'm a scientist. I'm annoying, right? And so like, <laughs> if, if, if we're going to demify something, I'm fine demifying ultra processed foods, but then you're going to invariably create a, a heuristic about good versus bad. I eat processed foods every day and I am very healthy. <laughs> like, like, like I eat ultra processed foods every day and delicious. I can- <laughs> and I, my lab work is better than 0.1% of the population, right? So I, I am healthy and I eat ultra processed foods. Like, how is that possible? Right. <laughs> <laughs> any type of, any type of good versus bad narrative in food, mm-hmm. I would really look at that because it's probably causing social isolation. It's probably cause you're probably putting that on other people. Mm. Um, and so I would think like, okay, why do I have this belief of good versus bad? And are there places that this is untrue? Because if we seek to understand, then we can potentially get out of that judging shame mind, which is so present in nutrition. And we can just eat, we can just eat food with people. Like I just want to, I just want to eat food with people and just eat food and and hang out. I I don't care what kind of bread you're eating. I don't like, it doesn't matter to me. Like what are your goals? What do you want to do? Let's not talk about it. And let's just eat some really delicious food. Yeah. Let's not, let's not think of food as punishment and maybe also not as reward, but as a way that we can be together and enjoy. And neither of those things are bad. Like if you think, like if you think about food in that way, accept it and like, Hey, this is how I think about food right now is this gets into like DBT theory. Like the only way to change is radical acceptance. Like I'm having these, I'm having these feelings. Like I think I, I've been doing this a long time. I have all those feelings too. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Mm-hmm. We can have those feelings. We can have those thoughts. Those thoughts will always appear. Those mm-hmm. thoughts are appearing again. I'm thinking about food as, as a punishment for this thing I did. Okay. That's fine. It's, it's bullshit. Let's move on. <laughs> um, Very self-aware. Um, All right. So one more question that I think is uh, important to ask before we talk about a little bit more about you. Do women specifically need to take a different approach to nutrition as we age? One of the things I hear a lot, and maybe you can speak to this, there was an article in the Times about it that I'll link in the show notes, is that our metabolism slows down or our metabolism changes as we age and therefore that's one reason we need to eat differently yeah this gets into a cultural phenomenon of like women are not just small men which i think is 100 percent like i would be an advocate of that we don't have enough female research like we don't have enough mm. like 100 um but as sexes we are more similar than we are dissimilar we are mm. the same species mm. um and so especially so 
we get more similar throughout the life course. Um, like the sexes do come together. Males will get more female and females will get more male gen- in general um, as we age. What, and, what does that have to do with hormones? Uh, yeah. So like testosterone is always the dominant hormone in females, even when they're cycling. Um, interesting. It is always the dominant hormone. Mm. It, there's way more around than estrogen. Estrogen is very potent. This is from Herman Ponser's lab. Um, there's a huge, these huge conglomeration, double-labeled water studies. Um, and it does look like our metabolic rate slows, but it doesn't happen until 60. And this is kind of, this, this is very, very, very disconcerting to a lot of females because they would thought it would have been 51. Because that's when they started to gain weight. And they were like, my metabolism is to blame. My metabolism is broken. What you're saying is that metabolism doesn't actually slow down until what age? 60. So what's the weight gain about? What's the weight gain about? This is called apophenia. I'll define the term. So apophenia is when people put two unrelated things together and they they infer causality. Uh-huh. Um, so we have menopause. Females start feeling lots of things. And I'm not, I'm a male. I'm not trying to tell people how to feel inside their own bodies. I understand that this message probably shouldn't come from me, but I've researched this to the nth degree. You're the PhD. <laughs> when you track females across menopause, they do not gain any more weight. So like from 40 to 50, people do not gain any more weight than they gain from 30 to 40. Human beings in our current environment just gain weight. And so like, it's an associative thing. Like, you will have slight body composition changes, slight, very, very slight, even hard to measure with body composition metrics. But you, you mentioned muscle loss. At the age of thirty, females start losing. Females and males start losing weight. If you don't use losing use muscle, it, you, yes. If you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. We gain we gain weight until about sixty five, but then we start losing because our appetite decreases, and that gets into sarcopenic obesity, which is an absolute wave that is going to hit our population. It's going to be terrible, and it's going to cause potential bankruptcy of our healthcare department. That's Wally, and that's that is if you've seen the movie, like that is where we are headed. Forty eight percent of our current population has metabolic syndrome. Um, Two thirds of our population is now pre diabetic. And this is so like we have to honor that overweight and obesity are a problem for our species. Mm-hmm. Probably the biggest like having too many cupcakes and too much delicious food and easy access to it is probably the I mean, we have a lot of problems, but it's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, we, and we don't know what to do with that um, social, culturally, individually. And, mm-hmm. and so, but we also have to honor like we, we have a huge body image concern, which is also perforated by a lot of things. And, and so a, I've written articles on like the solutions to these problems are more intertwined than people think they are. So like we have these body image problems and then we also have the obesity crisis and they're super related. It's a false dichotomy to put them against each other. Right. It's like, what, what are the interventions that are going to help with body image and what are the mm-hmm. interventions that are going to help with obesity? One of the big ones is resistance training, physical activity, not focusing on how your body looks, but focusing on how your body performs. Yes. Those are the, so that's, those are the, the, that's why I'm constantly coming back to like defining strength. What does fitness look like to you? What is, what is, what is your, what is your ideal body composition for you? How does that relate to health? Is that possible? Hmm. What is the cost of that? On the individual, none of this stuff matters. On the population level, it matters a lot, but it's a hmm. very different, very different kind of thought process. On the individual, it's just like, okay, what, what do we want to do? Let's get in the weeds. It seems though, right, that eating healthy according to the internet and being fit according to the internet, from my perspective, is very complicated. 
if you listen to the influencers who have the biggest microphones, a lot of them, who have maybe ranging from like ridiculous ideas about seed oils. You were going to talk about seed oils and I kind of interrupted you and we don't have to go into seed oils right now, but like seed oils are being demonized and the carnivore diet is being heralded as the best diet. And then we've got the keto people. And then we've got like, um, you know, <laughs> some somebody like Andrew Huberman, who's just rattling off like 16 different things you need to do during the day to have a healthy kind of lifestyle protocol or whatever he calls them, right? It just seems so complicated, Ben. Like, is nutrition and is fitness really this complicated? What should we think? No. I mean, that's why I come I come back to the individual is like, what do you want to do? Like, what is the individual price? What is the benefit you you started? Like, what is the individual effect size? Like, is doing Ben Greenfield's or Andrew Huberman's is doing that 30? Like, that could be important if you want to like move the needle 1%. But like, what are the things that are going to get you? What are the things that are going to get you very healthy? And like, so 8,000 steps looks to be the break point for regulation of appetite. Um, also looks to be the break point for how you adapt to exercise. So like steps isn't the best marker of movement, but it's a marker. Um, so moving more will help your will help your body in a ton of different ways. So everybody really gets mad about the physical activity guidelines. They get so mad about them, but <laughs> but they're actually pretty good. Yeah. Like like they're pretty good. Like uh, strength train twice per week, right? Like and do some moderate physical activity. Like they're 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 good. They're good. If people did the recommendations, even the dietary ones, the dietary ones aren't terrible. Like they're not that bad. What are um, they? What are they? The dietary recommendations are the the problem is is they're very broad. Uh, and people don't like they're like eat this much protein, eat this much because nutrition, you can be inside of those windows and be healthful. Mm-hmm. Um there are some types of like this is where I get if we want like an eight thousand step one, mm-hmm. I would we do. say Five to seven servings of vegetables mm. per day. Per day. I'm not. I'm not getting that. I'm not getting that. <laughs> Five to seven. You can clear a lot of micronutrient deficiencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then so if I'm thinking about all right, what are general heuristics for nutrition? Um, it's five, probably five to seven servings of fruits and vegetables. Then the next one would be protein intake throughout the life course mm-hmm. that's going to likely be as you age like 1.2 grams per kilogram mm-hmm. it's not a ton if you want to make gains it's probably 1.6 and 1.8 grams per kilogram of bioavailable protein those are kind of two pretty solid heuristics that that you can go to bat for um and then the other one is like if someone doesn't have disordered eating or eating disorder tendencies mm-hmm. um i think it is generally a good idea to try to track some stuff and have this experience Because you'll start to see like, wow, I thought I was eating this many calories, but I am so wrong because I'm eating a lot of mixed food. Like people are generally eating a lot more fat than they think, Mm. a lot less protein than they think. And I'm not advocating this for anyone who has had those, like it's, we we now have a hunch that like tracking your food, like turning your food into numbers doesn't probably lead to disordered eating, but People who have disordered or eating disorder tendencies, if they do that, it's probably not a good idea. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, that, that's really super relevant to this audience. I know mostly women, right? So that that right there, I think, is going to be 
potentially uh, a population that would be more likely to have had disordered eating. And then also yoga teachers who tend to also be dancers, maybe coming from like performance professions like I did the acting. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. Keep going. (laughs) The worst place to be in the diet world is having high levels of dietary restraint and not getting results. Right. So like that is like, I'm trying to do all of these things and nothing's working. Um, and that is where I, I thrive because, and that's where there's lots of coaches that thrive because I've seen so many patterns that Mm -hmm. I can be like, Oh, you're clipping yourself here. This is where you're running into trouble. Like, Mm -hmm. and I try not to like tell, sometimes if I have a good relationship with someone, I'll, I'll just tell them like, here, here, this is what's likely causing you're like, you're, you're controlling your diet to a large, large degree, but you're not getting results. Um, and you, and you, and that's super frustrating. I understand that that's frustrating. Um, and so one of the things that can break through that is actually getting success. And then once you get success, then you have to decide like, is it worth it? Is me not being as social? Like, how could I, like, what is the cost of this thing? Cause mm-hmm. everything has a price, right? And this gets into like the price you act about, asked about aesthetics, the price of leanness. There's always mm-hmm. a price. Every, every level of leanness has a cost. And then you have to ask, am I willing to pay that price? Mm. Um, socially, individually, like, are you willing to pay that price? Financially? Right. Financially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what food you buy. And some people aren't going to have the capabilities, the opportunities. They're not going to have the, the environment to even be able to ask those questions. The right? access to the supermarkets that sell 100%, the food. 100%. Right. Right. 100%. Like one of my core values is intentionality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like if if I can, if I know the price of something, I can be like, okay, I know that's not worth it, but I know the price of this other thing and I can step step back to that. And that's what's really, I'm going to come back to bodybuilding and why everybody hates it. That's why, that's, that's why bodybuilding is really cool because if you have a really good coach and you're, and you're highly self-aware, you kind of stair step down and you hit this point where you have the body that you've always fucking wanted. Like you've always wanted it. Like if you get big and you get shredded and you still don't have the body that you wanted, that that is time to talk to a therapist. Like body dysmorphia, I imagine, is is a thing amongst bodybuilders. A hundred percent. Like if you if you ostensibly get absolutely shredded and and you have the body that you've always wanted, I've been there. Like I've like wow. Like I got the body. I've worked for the body that I've always wanted since I was a sixth grader, and it's unmaintainable. Yeah. I'm, I have all like, my hands are cold. My feet are cold all the time. I can't, I can't, I can't sleep. Right. Mm. So then, then then I'm able to eat with it. Then I'm able to have intentionality. Like the price of this is way too fucking high, way too high. Yeah. Right. Then, then the social comparison theory doesn't, I don't care. Okay. Awesome. You're shredded for me. I can't be that. There's some people that can live that shredded, but once you understand, seek first, understand if you have the opportunity, that's why bodybuilding was so such a cool experience to me because I got that low and I was like, Oh, that's, that's not something that I can maintain. The price is too steep, right. but I can stair step it back up mm. um, rather than like always wishing, always wondering. Um, mm. And and I can also like, there's no reason that people have to do that. And it's all a barometer of where you've been and where you are, right? Like the body, the brain seems to respond to body fat levels. The most I've ever weighed is 200 pounds. And I got down to 160. Like I could not maintain that. That's 20% weight loss. Yeah, that's that's a lot. It's 20% weight loss, but 
if we look at the weight loss, like where people seem to not maintain weight loss, it's 10 to 12%. Yeah. And so like, maybe I think in my head, like at some semblance, me living at 160, maybe the same as someone who's 240 and got down to 190 as a man. It's not the same thing. It, I would be lying if I said it was the same thing. Mm-hmm. But I have so much empathy. Like if their brain was as food focused as mine was in that state, I have so much empathy for that. Like they are walking a tightrope mm. probably in terms of their life trying to maintain that. And one of my one of my goals is in that scenario, like that that is kind of what we need at the population level. We don't even need that. We just need people to move and eat vegetables, really. Right. Um and and if we can if we can get people re, what, what's called body recomposition, this is kind of like one thing that I'm super interested in. Mm. I, I know that's a question that you had. If, yes. if we can get if we can get people <laughs> to lose 10 pounds of body fat, and this, this is not your audience. Like this is remember, 48, 47% of our population has metabolic syndrome, two-thirds have prediabetes. It's it's bad. They, they teach those people though. They teach those people. This is the trade that I'm trying to make on the broad level. This will not match people's motivations of how they want their bodies to look. But from a health perspective, if they can lose 5% of their body weight and gain 5% of their body weight in muscle, mm. probably doesn't have the negative effects of long-term weight loss, which does seem to be very hard to maintain for the for most people. Not all people. It is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not impossible. But look ahead. The longest, most potentially most expensive long-term weight loss study that we ever had, the majority of the weight they lost was lean body mass in that study. Mm. Over the long period of time. It's not good. Not good. good. We can do both at the same time. We like If you want to be in a study, be the N of one where you lose 10 to 15 pounds of body fat and you gain 5 to 10 pounds of muscle. Be that study because I think your brain might not fight it. And health-wise, you're going to be so much better off Performance-wise, whatever that means for you, you're probably going to be better off. Um, aesthetically, it probably won't match what you want, but that's when you got to talk to the therapist about what do you want and <laughs> will that make you happy. Awesome. Amazing information. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, I wanted to ask one more little question. Where can people work with you and learn from you? We talked about opportunity and, and resources and access. I've made a lot of what I do very, very cost effective. So I have almost a hundred articles that are available for $8 a month. You can buy it for a month and read every article and then cancel. I don't care. I don't look at it. That's deconstruct nutrition. We're going to link that in the show notes. Deconstruct nutrition. And then we have, if we do have two courses, which will close at the end of 2023. Um, we have a nutrition coaching course and also behavioral psychology. Cause I think behavioral psychology and nutrition are directly intertwined. You'll hear me talking about Combi and DBT, all these acronyms from the psychology world, because there's no way you can disentangle those two things. How are you going to change behaviors and nutrition? We're going to link that course as well in the show notes. What is the course called? I created a company as a joke in, in pre-pandemic. It's broresearch.com. I have a daughter. I wouldn't name it that now. Um, that's why I created it. Broresearch. Broresearch.com. The goal of that is still my, it is still my passion. It is researching like super hyper nuanced like, can we even measure muscle mass effectively? On a lot of levels, I would say no. Listen to the podcast where I go with Grant Tinsley and we talk about all the negatives of different types of body competition, composition methods and how- mm, They're all flawed, huh? I'll, live, I'll leave people with this. What gets measured gets managed. What gets mismeasured likely gets mismanaged. 
And so many things in nutrition gets mismanaged that we get so many miss Mm -hmm. because of the mismanagement and just our inability to measure things effectively. The the calorie myth really stems from our inability to effectively measure calorie intake and calorie output. Mm. So, because people can't measure it effectively, they think it's wrong. Got it. And they're, they're not, their experience is not wrong for them. They are really bad at this math. (laughs) It's not working for them. It's our inability to measure it. Like our inability Mm. to measure a lot of these things is, is causing a lot of problems. Mm. Cool. So we're going to link Deconstruct Nutrition and your nutrition course in the show notes. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. I feel like this has been a fascinating conversation that went many different directions, but kind of all came back to some endearing topics. And so uh, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your your passion. It, it just I'm looking at Ben right now, we're face to face and he just jumps through the screen. So uh, if you do get a chance to work with Ben, um, I'm going to tell you it's, it's a delight. It's a delight. A note to you listeners that you can check out our show notes for links to references that I mentioned in this podcast. You can also visit the Movement Logic website where you can get on Sarah and my mailing list to be in the know about sales on our tutorials. Finally, it helps us enormously. If you like this episode, please subscribe and then go the extra mile, rate and review us as well in iTunes uh, or anywhere that you get your podcasts. We'd be super appreciative of you if you did that. Join us again next week for more movement logic and more of our strong opinions loosely held. Thank you so much again, Dr. House, for joining me today. Thanks.